welcome to a special edition of the Podcast of Ideas from the team here at the Academy of Ideas in London. My name's Jacob Reynolds. Earlier this month, the Academy of Ideas held a meeting of our International Salon, a public forum for the discussion of important international issues. The topic at the beginning of this month was the Ukraine crisis, um, and you can go back and listen to that here on the podcast feed if you missed it. Even less than a month ago, when we had that conversation, a full invasion seemed possible, but nonetheless unlikely. But our contributors to that discussion, Professor Frank Frady, the author and commentator, and Mary Dejewski, the experienced journalist who's been covering Russia and beyond for many years now, they both warned in that event of a range of factors that had led us to the brink of conflict in Ukraine. At that event, we tried to put Putin's aims and concerns in context. We discussed how the West has been playing a dangerous game with NATO expansion. And we warned that today's Western politicians and diplomats are often ill-informed, ill-prepared and ill-experienced to handle a crisis of this nature. Furthermore, we noted how longer-running trends, uh, exacerbated in some cases by the pandemic, had given both domestic and international politics a highly unpredictable uh, feeling. Now, with Russia having carried out the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that many warned of, we caught up with Frank and Mary over the past 24 hours to assess their thoughts on the war, how we'd got here, and what it means for international politics going forward. You will first hear those two conversations with Frank and Mary, and then a few thoughts from the Academy of Ideas team about what all this means. So, Frank, perhaps just uh, two simple questions to you, really. I mean, first, how did we get to this point where um, a a full invasion did indeed happen? And then what does this mean for uh, Russia and the West and for geopolitics more generally going forward? Well, like most people, Obviously, I'm taken aback by the the speed with which events unravel, and I think it relates to a point that uh, we discussed earlier on in our discussion, where I made the point about the immature character of the conduct of geopolitics, and not only is is uh, the problem of geopolitics to do with the personalities involved in all the different uh, nations and great powers in the world. It's also due to the fact that uh, what the pandemic seems to have done is kind of accelerated a trend where we kind of move away from the previous globalized vision of a a kind of relatively predictable world order to one that is increasingly uh, one that's brought back national rivalries, uh, geopolitical tensions, which are far less mediated than they would have been in the past. And for one reason, with the decline of uh, any global policeman and the, uh, to some extent, the growing disunity within different blocs, it does create an extremely difficult situation that in many respects resembles not what people often compare it to, which is the interwar period, uh, but much more the 19th century European balance of power, uh, sort of jockeying around kind of situation where alliances are temporary, they're forged in such a way uh, that uh, it's based on very uh, fluid, temporary interest. So I think what, what that's the setting for it. And I think what has really brought things to a head, I suppose, looking at it, is that 
it, it became very clear at a certain point that uh, uh, the diplomatic maneuvers, uh, particularly promoted by the West, had a destabilizing character on the way that the negotiations and the discussions were conducted by the West and, and Russia. I think that Russia became, it seems to me, increasingly defensive and insecure in uh, not really knowing uh, sort of what to do, not really wanting to lose face. And I think that uh, gradually uh, what must have occurred is that it, it, it more or less decided at some point that its own national interests uh, were best uh, enforced by unfortunately invading the Ukraine. And it and that's you know sort of uh, in, it began by formalizing the occupation of the two uh, regions around the border, uh, which was already uh, a de facto fact of life, and then at some point in the last few days, it it made a decision to actually uh, sort of uh, throw down the gauntlet and and tell uh, the West that we're here. We don't expect you to do very much. We think you're going to behave in relation to the Ukraine the way you behaved in Libya or Afghanistan, and I think that's the situation that we're seeing. In. And unfortunately, you know, the sovereignty and 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 the right to nation of the self determination of Ukraine has been uh, put put under tremendous tremendous threat. Thanks. Um, and of course, there's lots of talk now of sanctions and all the rest. And I mean, that would at best be a, a punishment. And I don't think anyone's pretending that's going to solve the situation in Ukraine. But what do you think is the are the the next steps for the West here? You've noted that it's kind of a moment of real disunity. Some people perhaps uh, kind of dream that this might be a, a moment of kind of reunification, as it were, of, of the West. What do you think this kind of means for the West going forward? I think that's uh, at the moment very unclear because uh, everybody's reacting to the other side all the time. I don't think that either side has got a, a long-term plan, but it seems to me that from my understanding of uh, history and the way that geopolitics politics tend to play themselves out, there's a danger that what can easily happen uh, in a, almost like a, a caricature fashion is uh, an attempt by both sides to reassert the old divisions, you know, the old Cold War divisions, but in an entirely new form, where essentially what you have is are two blocks, or they aren't any longer the same kind of blocks that they were. But essentially, what I worry about is that Russia, you know, might uh, have the aspiration of insisting a, on a, a Yalta-like agreement where essentially East Europe, not just the Ukraine, but East Europe and bits of the Baltic states uh, are part of its sphere of influence. And the West, you know, sort of um, is, uh, is, is kind of consolidate its position by unifying Europe and America a little bit more. I mean, that's, these are very kind of uh, early trends that are moving in that direction. But obviously that would create a whole lot of problems uh, uh, in a sense, because it would uh, create a situation where war and uh, or or near war situations can be on the agenda, you know, sort of, uh, you know, in the in the in the medium term, uh, and, and even in the short term, the way that things are developing with such rapidity. Brilliant, and thank you very much, Frank. I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Okay, see you later. Bye bye.
and now I'm joined by uh, Mary Dijewski, who is the other of our panelists on our international salon event uh, earlier in the month on Ukraine. Um, Mary, it's, it's great to have you back and thanks for sparing uh, some time for us. It's Friday morning as I speak to you. There's been reports uh, of Russian troops in or around Kiev um, and it's, it's, it's be good to catch up with you. I think really two uh, questions kind of come to mind, especially bearing in mind your contributions to the Salon event we held. I mean, one, the first one, why do you think in the end that uh, Putin decided to push the button, as it were, and go for war? Well, I mean, as you know from what I said before, I was very reluctant even to broach the possibility of Putin going to war, even going beyond the, um, the, 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 the rebel regions, even if he did intervene. And I think that um, the consideration would be very, very simple and very basic, that Putin made the calculation that Russia's national security was better served by trying to neutralize Ukraine as a, as he might see it, a military threat to Russia, than it was by doing nothing. And I think we're already seeing that um, there may have been problems with some of that judgment. But something that sort of concerns me is that so many people are now saying not only, you know, we were vindicated, we knew that Putin would do something like this, but he's mad, he's deranged. And I think that's far too lazy and simplistic a way of looking at it. Um, it always seemed to me that if Putin was going to was going to act, he was going to do it um, not to teach Ukraine a lesson, not out of a fit of pique, not out of any sort of um, self-aggrandizement of Putin but because he saw a threat to Russia's national security. And Putin has long talked about the threat as he sees it from NATO's advance towards Russia. And Ukraine was seen as the last piece in that jigsaw, something that would almost complete um, NATO's superiority and its threatening stance towards Russia. So I think that um, he must have feared that NATO was going to be maybe fast-tracked into NATO or that with NATO troops training and NATO weapons already in Ukraine, that he had a rather, a rather nice phrase for it. He said, well, you know, it wasn't just about Ukraine in NATO, it was about NATO in Ukraine. Um, and he must have finally felt that um, a line had been crossed. Yeah, great. Thanks, Marie. I, I noticed as well that uh, over the last day or so, you've been getting a, a lot of stick on, on Twitter and, and elsewhere for kind of making these points and trying to just put across what is the rationale uh, for the, the, the Russian action without, of course, kind of pretending, even pretending to, to justify it. It's, it's just, yeah. it shows you how difficult this conversation uh, can be. The other thing I wanted to ask you is obviously, uh, well, last night, Thursday night, we saw some quite significant protests in Russia against the war. So I wanted to ask what your thoughts are, your reading is on how this is being received uh, in Russia. I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of everything that's happened over the last 48 hours, because one of the reasons that I felt that 
would discourage Putin from launching military action against Ukraine was domestic opinion, because Ukraine isn't Syria. Ukraine is not Afghanistan. It's not somewhere that Russia sees as alien. Russians have friends and family in Ukraine. It's quite familiar territory to them. And the idea that um, that their leadership would be launching what now appears to be an all-out war on the neighbour, I think, will it raises enormous questions in Russia. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think that Russian opinion, especially in younger generations, the climate of opinion has started to change. And I always felt for a long time that one of the reasons Putin had been so successful in holding on to power now, now for 20 years was that he had this um, almost uncanny handle on Russian public opinion and the mood in Russia. And he was able to sense almost what Russians wanted before they wanted it. And he moved even as Russian opinion shifted in all sorts of ways. But it also seemed to me that over the last two years, um, roughly, maybe he'd been losing that very assured sense of where Russia was. Um, and there have been the protests that we saw um, last night, obviously they were triggered by the invasion of Ukraine, but there have been other protests all over Russia, including, you know, it, it's often forgotten um, that provinces have a life in Russia as well. And there have been, pro been protests about, um, often about local issues, um, which have gathered pace about ecological issues, about local political issues, about local corruption. Um, there was a, a series of um, very well supported and regular protests in the very far east of, uh, of Russia a year ago, which were about the removal by Moscow of the local governor. There is a sense of sort of political stirrings in the provinces. And social media has helped that enormously because it's provided a means of communication, you know, like we saw in Belarus. Um, it's not, you have to turn off this stuff in order to prevent people communicating and mustering and organizing protests. But the, the degree of support for the protests last night and the spread of protests across Russia. I think you, know, you, you might have expected some protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but the idea that there were protests in more than 30 cities across Russia, despite the threats of arrest, mm. bullying by the police, all those things, nonetheless, people came out. It may be you know, the first and last time they come out to protest this, that the repressions will get worse. But that mood is there and it'll stay there under the surface. And I think maybe this is this could be one of Putin's biggest misjudgments. Yes, the, the bravery of people going out uh, in, in, the, in and across Russia to protest against war is, is really quite something. Maybe just one final question before I let you go, Mary, which is about uh, the various sanctions that have been announced. And uh, perhaps a, a naive reading of this might be that they just don't seem all that impressive. And so they're not going to be, they're not going to go down as a particularly strong Western response uh, in Russia and in the Russian elite. What's your take on that? I tend to think that the, yeah, the, the value of sanctions generally and their effectiveness, almost regardless of how swinging they, that they, they might look, um, is overestimated in, in the West. And it becomes a sort of political gesture, the only thing you can do. Um, there were quite 
strong sanctions that were imposed in 2014 after Russia annexed Crimea. And they had two effects in Russia, really. One of them was to allow Putin to play the we are isolated, we are persecuted um, card and essentially muster public opinion. Um, And the other was that um, because the agricultural sector of Russia was was quite affected, um, Moscow invested much more in the agricultural sector than it had had done before. And a couple of years later, I was talking to somebody who who lived in the agricultural region, in fact, the regions that are bordering Ukraine. And he said there'd been something akin to an agricultural miracle because reorganization and more investment had meant that there was an absolute flowering of um, Russian agriculture. And you could see that um, over the last few years in, in in um, big city supermarkets, enormous rise in um, in the amount and variety and quality of Russian produce. So sanctions can have a perverse effect as well. Well, thanks, Mary, for joining us. Uh, really glad to get your take on things. Um, I'm sure you'll be uh, uh, plenty to be seen on in the media and whatnot over the next couple of days. So uh, good luck with all your engagements. But um, <laughs> thank uh, you. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Okay. Bye bye. So now I'm joined uh, by the Academy of Ideas team, or some of them. I'm joined by Alistair Donald, Ella Whelan, Mo Lovett, Rob Lyons, and Jeff Kidder. Uh, we're going to dig in a little bit to uh, react to what we heard from Frank and Mary, but also uh, try and get a handle on this situation, which is obviously very fast moving, and certainly the uh, kind of consequences of it are by no means clear. So, uh, Alistair, if, if I could turn to you, I think you had a couple of comments you wanted to raise. Well, I suppose like everyone else, I've been uh, slightly drowning in the wall-to-wall coverage of this and trying to make a bit of sense of it. Um, I noticed yesterday that Paul Embury, who's a regular at Battle of Ideas Festival and someone with always with something sensible to say, made a very good, what I thought was a very good point. He said that in the early days of conflict, it brings out the worst in people because sensible debate is often replaced by hyperbole and bellicosity. And I thought that was just quite a sensible caution in terms of the way that we we, we deal with a lot of what's going on just now, because it does seem to me that there's lots of people with very big theories and distinctive takes uh, that are ready to um, say fairly definitively what's going on, whereas it seems to me that uh, what has been happening is 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 kind of happening in a much more evolving, reactive type of way that makes it a little bit more difficult to get a handle on. So, you know, people who are, are ready to grandstand with theories of Russian great empire building and fulfilling historic missions, I sort of tend to take with a pinch of salt. Likewise, uh, people on the other side sort of uh, 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 putting forward the idea that this is just the West engineering some sort of conflict so that they can uh, shove Partygate off to the side or or whatever. So I think uh, kind of a bit of humility, perhaps, is the word in in terms of trying to understand this as a useful starting point and kind of recognising that there's something a little bit more out of control 
a, a framework where there's been a kind of collapse of of the kind of moral political frameworks that uh, have governed geopolitical relations in, in in recent times and trying to kind of understand just how it is that people are coming to these decisions. I sort of hesitate to reach for historical uh, reference points, but in my lifetime, it seems to me that uh, the, the sort of early 90s and, and, and the invasion of Iraq uh, is is a useful thing, not not at all in the sense of what actually happened in terms of Western responses, which in many ways is the direct opposite, but just because it seemed to me to represent a moment in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War where things were thrown up in the air and, and lots of things changed and everybody was trying to get a grip with what was what was going on at that time. And it seems to me that this is another of these moments where things have changed and things uh, we just need to kind of take stock of what's going on and try and work it out. I mean, Alistair, if only some of the British political class listened to your caution to leave off on the hyperbole because it's been quite remarkable uh, watching and listening to the responses coming out of some members of parliament. And actually, Frank made a really good point at the start when you were talking to him, Jacob, about the immature nature of geopolitics and about the way in which there is a sort of a desire among um, some members of the European political class to make historical connections and, in fact, actually to link back to previous times and use it as a means of um, grandstanding against Russia. So you had the UK Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, making another quite worryingly ridiculous comment um, and saying that he was, uh, that the UK was going to kick Putin's backside like they did Tsar Nicholas I, which is you know, linking to 1853 in the Crimean War, which is a really remarkable thing for a UK Defence Secretary to say. Uh, as Frank says, it proves the immature nature of geopolitics, but it's also... Um, part of this kind of pantomime that I think many British politicians are playing in which um, the Russian bear is the kind of evil enemy and the West is the saintly white knight that's going to um, ride in and, and save Ukraine, despite the fact that actually anyone who knows anything about the British military at this point knows that that is practically impossible. Um, there's also been uh, you know, on both sides of the British political divide, there's been worrying things. I mean, the fact that the Labour Party has decided to threaten its mem members of its party with removing the whip if they so much as come out of with a, a whiff of dissension from NATO, those who were signed up to the Stop the War Coalition have been told that if they don't remove their support for that group, that they'll be kicked out of the party. That's certainly something. And then Tom Tugendhat coming out uh, recently and suggesting that the UK could kick out all Russian citizens from, uh, you know, from our country. It's it's things like that that I think show you how uh, how unwilling um, the Western political elite is to acknowledge its role in the conflict at the moment. And it's why people like Mary Dijewski have had such a difficult time in talking about the fact of NATO expansion and in talking about the, you know, the very real um, problem that Russia has felt in relation to um, NATO expanding and what's been happening with the kind of tug of war that's going on in Ukraine. And so, you know, the, the worrying thing is not just the immediate crisis that's happening in Ukraine with Russia and Putin completely ramroding over uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. But the long-term consequences for this, the potential for a kind of forever war in this region, if the West is, is kind of blind 
willfully blind about the role that it's playing in the tensions in that area. Yeah, I mean, I was going to kind of hone in on this um, this um, suggestion of Frank's that there's an immature character to geopolitics at the moment, um, because what struck me, you know, in the preceding weeks and the build up to 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 what's happened is how much of Western intelligence was made public, how much their own kind of thoughts and um, potential um, movements um, were made public, um, and yet despite them sort of almost unprecedentedly re- re- revealing this intelligence publicly, everybody was taken aback. Everybody says that we were taken aback. I think everybody was taken aback by the scale and the speed of the um, the attack, even in the face of the fact that, you know, there were even predictions of to the, the date and time that the, the invasion would take place, and yet still people have been taken aback by it. So, I mean, I, to me, that speaks to a couple of things one is that um something we've talked about a long time and i think frank has alluded to it as well as this loss of authority um of the western elites you know the fact that these um this, this intelligence wasn't taken seriously or wasn't believed or there was so much kind of lazy analysis around it is the one thing and also it seems to have served very little purpose um, other than, um, you know, what I think Mary calls it, we were vindicated. Um, You know, it's a bit like I told you so. It seems to have, uh, you know, served very little pragmatic um, purpose except for people saying we got this right. Um, And um, which doesn't really help the Ukrainian people right now. Um, And that is something that struck me as well as, you know, we've already talked about how Mary's had so much pushback and, you know, anybody who kind of even wants to look at things from a kind of in the round and the rationale for Russia's behaviour is is kind of deemed a, a Putin apologist. And it's almost like there's, for me, there's been so much truth and wisdom within what Mary's had to say and other commentators have had to say. But this this kind of um, analysis of the war seems to be down to whether or not you could predict a cause and effect here, not whether or not you may be able to glean some kind of rationale from for what's happened from looking at the wider picture and looking at geopolitics in the round um so i mean none of this helps at the moment but it just seems to me that we've um we've ended up in a very kind of tribal and lazy analysis of what's happening which may have been to the detriment of of people in the region yeah i mean i think i'm really struck by the sort of black and white way in which what this thing is being viewed at the moment is that you you can hold two ideas in your head at the same time, which is that Putin is entirely responsible for this. It's his actions that have undermined the national sovereignty of Ukraine that's going to lead to bloodshed in this uh, region, and he is doing that for his own purposes. I mean, that's that's uh, that's wrong, and Russia should get out of Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, noting the weakness of the the way in which the West has handled it and the way it's ha- handled Russia for quite a long time now, and, and that's that's problematic. As particularly, I mean, I mean, you would have thought that geopolitics, understanding geopolitics, means understanding your enemies or your opponents' strengths and weaknesses and their their rationales and what they want to get out of things and your own strengths and weaknesses as well and the fact is the west is pretty divided it has not invested in the military for a very long time because it was it was thought that we're only going to be fighting small wars in the third world or something or we might get hit by some cyber attacks and that's about it 
Um, there hasn't been a sense of uni unity of purpose for, for quite some time. And so for what, what was needed was some diplomacy to ensure that we could get the least worst result in Ukraine. And I, th I think that the diplomacy has clearly failed if Russia is in a situation where it not... It, both believes that he has to invade Ukraine to achieve its purposes and can get away with it. I think that some some soul searching in the West about what's gone on there is is desperately needed, and some nuance in the discussion about how to take the, these things forward. Obviously, if I was living in one of the Baltic states at the moment, I'd be very nervous because it's clear that the West is at the moment isn't up to providing um, support or providing any kind of deterrence to Russia at the moment um, and you know Putin may well calculate at some point in the future that further incursions are useful to, to complete this kind of sense of surrounding Russia with countries that are neutralized I think that the, the the West needs to raise its game in terms of some sense of unity of purpose and as many people have noted over the past um sort of few days. I mean, Tom McTague, Tom McTague in The Atlantic makes this point is that our Western society is up for it, up to you know, making sacrifices or the unity of purpose that's um, required in such situations, or at least pro project that sense of, of purpose, when we seem to be so riven by not only the COVID, COVID uh, um, fallout, but everything from, you know, all the sort of woke culture wars sorts of things that are going on through to economic uh, problems as well, that you know, from Russia's point of view, well, see, well, why not? Um, why not? And why not now? Yeah, Rob, thanks for that. I think these points about the failure of diplomacy are also uh, are really especially important to me, it seems. I mean, many people said in the run-up to this that, well, Biden's at the helm of things now and Biden's kind of known as a steady hand and he'd be able to be one of the people who would kind of make sure that cooler heads prevailed in all of this. But to me, it seems that, I mean, Biden had gone completely missing throughout the entire crisis as a, really as a, a bigger symptom as there could be of the, the decline of the US as a, as a major power able to influence events. People noted that if uh, that Afghanistan was a massive kind of uh, military failure for the US, and this seems to be a massive diplomatic or soft power failure for the US. And I think uh, people in the West have to kind of really start reckoning with what that means, whether that means an attention to the military, as you as you say, Rob, or other things. I think this also came out very clearly in the way that uh, Western nations have responded with sanctions. And like Mary said, I might not be the world's biggest fan of sanctions, but I think it's really notable in geopolitical terms that in the run-up to this, the West said they'd had all these meetings and everybody was lined up and everybody was completely agreed about what the package of sanctions was going to be, depending on what happened, where and when. Um, and then in the aftermath of this, all you see is squabbling, uh, piecemeal packages of sanctions, lots of, as I say, squabbling about whether and if they are even going to deprive Russia of access to the international payment systems and these things. And I think that's a, a really kind of profound signal of how divided the West is. Um, I wanted, though, to, to note that, I mean, this article, we should we should put it maybe in the in the podcast notes or something from Tom Matei at the Atlantic, because I think there is a, a danger to some of these discussions where it's framed as a question of, oh, you people don't want to fight anymore for the West. And so it's framed not as a, a kind of issue of elite failure of people uh, involving 
Western countries in disastrous wars, in not being able to raise the standard of living and all the rest of it. And then that's turned around and people are blamed for not wanting to fight or support these wars. It's notable that in the UK and the US, public support for intervention is very low, much lower than uh, in, in other recent kind of international conflicts. And there's a there's you almost get a sense that there are some elites that are turning around and blaming ordinary people who don't want to get involved because they kind of rationally look at the uh, history of these interventions and see that lots of them have, have kind of been, been failures. Two other points I wanted to pick up just to kind of some feelings. I mean, I I went down to the uh, kind of anti-war gathering or Ukrainian solidarity gathering in London yesterday, and I think it was. And I've listened to obviously lots of the interviews with uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine as well. But one thing that I think is really notable and to me um, quite saddening uh, is the degree to which lots of Ukrainian and Ukrainian civil society really felt like they were promised something bigger in terms of Western support, and now they feel like they're going it alone. And of course, we saw a very similar thing in Georgia in 2008, where there was perhaps implicit guarantees were maybe made to the Georgians about what support would be forthcoming if they if, if, if something kicked off in the region. And similarly, I think there's a sense amongst Ukrainian civil society that, uh, well, the West, you promised you kind of had our back and you promised you made. And Zelensky has been saying similar things like you, you said we were going to join NATO. So when you said we were going to have a path into the EU when and there's this sense that they feel kind of betrayed or let down by the by the West and that again speaks to this the the kind of failure of diplomacy and the 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 slightly almost childish approach that the West has had towards Ukraine and I think that's that's it's both a real shame for the Ukrainian people who maybe felt something or other but it's it's also just emblematic of how the West kind of but has no intention even of living up to its promises uh, Jeff, a few thoughts from you. Well, I would just echo some of the sentiment that people said earlier, which is that obviously there's a shock of the initial initial shock of the invasion, which I think I'm right. And it feels like two weeks ago, but I think it was only yesterday, um, which I shared as well because I hadn't expected that to happen. And now there's all the noise where everybody's just got their own theory about it and explaining everything. And I think, as people have said, it's important that just to try and start yes, follow things very closely and comment on the detail, but just stand back a bit and try and see uh, see what's happening. Everything at the moment is very in the early stages. It's very provisional. There's certain things you can see immediately that uh, very old principles like self-determination actually mean something. And somewhere where Russia has, uh, it, whether it's bombing or going in and taking away a nation's self-determination, and also, you know, verbally uh, uh, saying that it, it doesn't deserve self-determination. That even in itself shows how important that a principle like that, a, a, a nation, a group of people geographically, have the right to determine uh, determine their own future and how significant it is to, for that to go away and, and be taken away in this instance. And then also looking at, as, as was mentioned by Mary and by Jacob, the, the protests as well. And but particularly many, many people in Russia really shocked and really uh, 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 taking part in protests in a very inhospitable environment. And to see that there is that groundswell, uh, uh, however limited, I don't know, uh, of opposition is, is, is very important. I mean, overall, the thing that's really striking, because people keep comparing what's happened to past events and events in the past and 
obviously time will tell uh, how these things rule out. But there is a sense that, you know, Putin, is what, you know, one of the veto powers on the Security Council, deciding to launch an invasion in Europe in 2022, there's a sense that, uh, as I think Frank said in the beginning, that some of the old rules, some of the old restraints of how people did, did things just seem to not apply now for a whole number of reasons. And whether he mentions the pandemic, but for, you know, and, and you can look at Afghanistan and the weakness, the way the West appeared after that. But for whatever the particular reason, things that in the past people would have been restrained from taking action either they wanted to, obviously with Russia in this instance, that isn't the case, which obviously going forward could cause, you know, could cause, a, could become a precedent. Uh, you know, other actions could happen, as has been mentioned in different places. It could be the beginning of, uh, of a, maybe a new era and new developments without wanting to go too far at this stage. But there's certainly a lot of significance of it. And it certainly we're very much at the beginning of it. So th these are things we have to look at and calibrate as they move forward. But you can't, as of today, I guess, make any hard and fast rules about it. So um, I, I, ju I just think we have to sort of stand back, look carefully at what's going on, but recognise that what's happening is very worrying and is quite as, whatever happens, is a very significant development that's happening uh, on, the, on, the, on the European continent. Yeah, Jeff, it's especially important, as you know, the principle of self-determination and of sovereignty. And I think, I mean, lots of people likewise have been uh, perhaps uh, surprised by the degree of resilience and courage shown by uh, lots of Ukrainian forces who didn't, despite many predictions, uh, kind of fold upon contact. And in fact, there's been kind of numerous stories obviously floating around of uh, great acts of heroism and courage and people uh, defending themselves against against those attacks so it, it does show that that principle as much as it might be trashed by uh many people that principle of self-determination is a is a live and real one that people are prepared to to fight and, for, and even to die for uh, ella well in that way i think actually there's it's um lots of ukrainians are showing up the west because part of the context to what's happening at the moment and sort of maybe perhaps even the reason why putin can take this kind of not not that it kind of is the excuse, but maybe the reason why it's sort of almost less shocking that he's doing this now is because the the idea and the principle of a nation state of borders of sovereignty, um, you know, all these all these principles of how we understand uh, democracies and countries to work have been called into question by the West over the last um, you know, 20 years in relation to the European Union and the way that that has functioned, discussions about having um, re removing borders, that borders are these this kind of evil imposition. And we know what's happened, particularly in the UK and the US in relation to the dis, you know attacks on democracy with the Brexit vote or with the Trump vote and with British and American political leaders um, being very disparaging about the notion of sovereignty or the idea that a people of a country have a right to say where their borders are and and define um, their own nation state and so you know in that context sovereignty is at a very support for that principle is at a very low point 
And so I think it was as Brendan O'Neill and Spike made the point that it's very hard to listen to the pearl clutching in the West about what's going on with Ukraine without um, wanting to say, well, how dare you try and pretend to be defenders of sovereignty right now because I think that's all going on in the background it's also very interesting that Mary brought up and you Jacob the protests because you know it is quite remarkable that people particularly in Russia are coming out and um, voicing their dissent because we know that lots of them are being arrested it's no you know it's it's not like going down um, to Parliament Square in the UK you know protesting in Russia at the moment is a very dangerous game and there hasn't been as much support for those people um, within the West. And there haven't been the kind of um, solidarity postings that you might expect. And I think that tells you something about the level of Russophobia um, in particularly in the UK. I've already mentioned what Tom Tugan has talked about, but also, you know, the long standing fact of uh, I think it was Patrick Cockburn mentioned in an independent um, article actually before war broke out that the word jingoism comes from the uh, Russo-Turkish War of 1877 and a song that British troops used to sing about fighting the bear and um, we've got the ships by jingo if we do that's where the word come from so this the kind of anti-Russia sentiment is very strong it's this you know idea that Russians are all corrupt that even Russian citizens are all a bit dodgy they're demonic they all hate you know gays and LGBTQ they're all backward and so all of that is also going to be playing into this scenario and you know it's going to have a block on I think international solidarity against Putin in a place where it's really quite important within his own country. Yes, I know. some reports that as many as a thousand people were arrested last night in, in Moscow alone shows you the, the kind of scope of the protests and what people are facing there. And as you say, shows that there is a there is a growing divide between the kind of Putin and the actions of the Russian elite and the Russian people. And that's one that we should kind of offer solidarity for, certainly. Alistair. Yeah, just well to go back to your your earlier point, Jacob, on on the the Western response and and the way that people in the Ukraine feel uh, let down a little bit about by it, because it it does. I think you're right in in saying that the kind of disarray of the Western response is is obvious to everyone. I mean, Macron marching around. Uh, uh, pretending that he's going to resolve things and, and proving hopelessly inadequate. Biden, uh, you know, just uh, appearing utterly clueless at times. Uh, and, and interesting things in, in terms of, uh, obviously, be, we're beyond Trump now, but that that legacy of of America turning in on itself a little bit is 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 evident in all these uh, articles being written by people calling themselves conservative realists and, and basically saying it's America's border that's more important. Who cares about Ukraine? People like Tucker Carlson. So that kind of bigging up of the situation at the same time as being utterly unable to conceive of how to tackle it is 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 I think very evident. But what's what's also uh, uh, interesting, I think, is the way that so much in in such a short space of time seems to have become framed around this 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 conflict um, in in terms of domestic policy. So you have someone like Sadiq Khan this morning um, saying that he's going to resolve London's housing crisis by grabbing back the property of Russians uh, living in London. Or you've had all the people who are uh, uh, critical and rightly, I, I I think, of of net zero policies. Um, who are now framing these as a kind of we need to invest in gas and oil as as a response to what's going on in in Ukraine. 
mean, so it's it's a kind of almost immediately. I mean, COVID. We've been, we've been stuck in COVID for two years. It's almost like we've immediately moved, jumped on to a to a, to a different situation. And yet, there seems so much about the legacy of the COVID era era that's still very important here, because uh, in in the sense of uh, COVID being the time when society has become much more restri- restricted and, and much more closed down. You can just, I think, tell in, in, in a lot of the response to the, the current situation that that, that continues uh, to, to predominate. Uh, the West, you know, almost... It, it feels so much more comfortable operating in the realm of sanctions and boycotts uh, rather than taking a more productive, decisive action to resolve these things. Uh, you've you've had immediately uh, jumping to the idea of banning Russia today and 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 uh, you know curtailing broadcasters. Ella mentioned earlier you had the the situation where the Labour Party immediately moved to close down anybody who was uh, uh, in, in any way supporting the Stop the War coalition. This morning you've had uh, the Young Labour uh, announcing that their Twitter account is going to be restrained because they're scared of of what people will say and it'll it'll uh, go against official Labour policy. So that kind of the first casualty of war being uh, free speech and dissent seems very much to be true and. And, and 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 very much uh, uh, in line with the period of of the, of the last couple of years, which you know leads inevitably to the way that uh, things like sporting tournaments and and uh, football matches become the focus of attention, because that's where uh, instinctively we in the West today, or, or or Western politicians and 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 institutional figures feel that they can exercise much more control. Yeah, Alistair, very useful points linking back nicely to Ella's first contribution about the kind of theatre and the, the, what Bruno Mackay has started calling the kind of pure virtualism of these performances in the West and contrasting that with the very physical reality of a war that's going on in uh, Russia and Ukraine, I think, cast the West in something of a bad light. Well, obviously, this situation is going to carry on developing. We'll be uh, reading and posting lots, so make sure you kind of keep an eye on our Twitter accounts and we'll try and guide you to things that we find interesting and useful, but also this shows just how much really is up in the air and how much uh, international politics, uh, as Jeff said, kind of no longer obeys some of the normal rules. So we'll be looking to get into that in a lot more detail, of course, at our annual festival, the Battle of Ideas Festival, which we're beginning to program now. And lots of these themes of how things, how much things are changing, both domestically and internationally, will be right at the forefront of that festival as we dig into it. So keep your eyes peeled. You can buy tickets already on the Battle of Ideas website, but we'll have lots more uh, updates for you then. Uh, for now, that's uh, it from us at the Academy of Ideas. Hope you found our conversations here useful and we'll uh, see you again soon. Yeah.